been reading through the Bible. I've been preaching through the Bible, some of the texts that we're hitting. And if you're visiting today, you're in luck because today is the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and I'm so excited that you're here uh, for multiple reasons. I want to, uh, I'm just going to read a smattering, uh, a sampler platter, if you will, of some of the verses out of Leviticus, and then I'll read our main text. Uh, first of all, let me start with chapter 3. You can read along with me, or I'll just read them to you. Uh, chapter 3, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma, for all the fat is the Lord's. Uh, Terry Lee Cobble said, I finally found my life verse. <laughs> all the fat is the Lord's. Chapter 11, uh, verse 13. This one's interesting. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They're detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, would love to see what that looked like. The black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopy, and the bat. Chapter 18. Chapter 13. Actually, I don't want to miss 13. That's a good one. 13. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald and he is clean. <laughs> that should be some of your life verses. Something to aspire to. Many of us are well on their way. And if a man's hair falls from his forehead, he has baldness on his forehead and he is clean. Chapter 18, verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanliness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Chapter 27, verse 14. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad, and the priest values it, so shall it stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem the house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. And then our text today I'm going to read 2.22, starting at verse 11 of Leviticus chapter 16. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from an altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil." And put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring the blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And this shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions, all of their sins, and so he shall do it for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness." 
No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of an altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in its readiness. And the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free, go free in the wilderness." This is the word of the Lord. Y'all didn't say that with near as much excitement as you, <laughs> as you normally do. That was a little bit half-hearted. Here's the deal. This book has a ton of challenges to it. It is mainly orchestrated around law, purification law, other types of law. It is foreign to our ears. It's obscure. It seems incredibly irrelevant. We don't know what to make of it. We don't know how to kind of process this whole book at all. And so what we want to do is make sense of the entire book, if we can, in its entirety. This is going to be, I think, the best sermon you've ever heard on the book of Leviticus. Precisely because it's the only sermon most of you have ever heard on the book of Leviticus. But we desperately need this book because there's at least four things that it gives us. And so this is part of survey. I'm going to look at the text a little bit, but it's also a broader survey of the whole thing. First of all, we need laws that reflect love. We need laws that reflect love. Let me give you a brief outline of the book if you need it. Chapters 1 through 7 are laws on sacrifice. Chapters 11 through 15 are laws on purification. Chapter 16 is the day of atonement. And then chapters 17 through 27, the laws of holy living. Everything works into chapter 16 and then out of chapter 16. And if you remember, the people, millions of people, are wandering right now in the wilderness. They're basically camping their way through Sinai, trying to get to the promised land. And so after Exodus, the book of Exodus, with all these instructions on the tabernacle, now God comes and he says, these are the laws that you need to be able to live in this environment under this scenario. Now, interesting, most laws are developed in community, right? Uh, that's why laws are different in different countries, and that's why laws are different in different states, because they develop within a community. A community actually decides the law. For example, uh, when Kate and Maggie were three and two, they stuffed uh, full rolls of toilet paper into our toilet and flushed it, I don't know, 10 or 20 times, and it overflowed the entire bathroom, and that was the first day that we said, we didn't know we needed to tell them not to do that. And every week of our parenting since then, we've said, I didn't know I needed to tell them not to do that. 
But you develop laws, right? We, had, we developed a law. Do not stuff toilet paper into the toilet like that. That's not how this works. You developed a law in community. Well, here, this is not a community development project. Here, God is giving the law to them. And the laws are laws of love. For example, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, 22, here's what it says. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings of the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, because I'm the Lord your God. One of the things you can do when you read Leviticus is actually look What are the attributes of the lawgiver who's giving these laws? And in that text, we see the kindness and the character of God behind them. For example, he says, look, when you have harvested your field, leave a section at the end. Don't harvest everything because I want you to care more about your neighbor and the sojourner and the people that are around you that don't have the land and the means. I want you to care more about them than you should care about your economic prowess. And I don't want you just to harvest everything and give them a part because I care about their dignity too. And I want them to be able to do a hard day's work of gleaning their own field, gleaning their own hay, being able to have dignity in that. The lawgiver is beautiful. These laws show the heart of the lawgiver. They're also protective. If you look at chapter 18 and chapter 20, there's a ton of laws around sexuality. For example, chapter 18, verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. In other words, I want you to think of sexuality differently. I've I've told you this before, but the biblical ethic around sexuality for Christians is not prohibitive. That's not the intent. The intent is to be protective. Uh, The intent is to care for the other people in this world, and so sexuality is limited to sex within marriage between a guy and a girl. So that's how it works. And that's not just to be prohibitive. That's meant to protect all the other things that could go horribly wrong if we don't have some larger ethic around sexuality. There's also laws around slavery. Now, the Bible's not in any way endorsing slavery. Matter of fact, when you think of slavery in the Bible, if if you have an English lit professor who wants to tear down your faith your freshman year at Clemson or Alabama or whatever, they'll say, look at this. The Bible talks about slavery, endorses slavery. No, it doesn't. If we followed the laws of the Pentateuch, which talks about not taking people captive, not owning property that are in person and uh, not kidnapping, If we had followed those, we would have never had chattel slavery in the West, in the British and American Empire. It never would have happened. Never would have had chattel slavery. But the slavery here is much different. It's when somebody is struggling financially, they might give themselves to another house. They might say, I can't afford my house anymore. I'll come live with you until I can pay it off. Look with me to Leviticus chapter 25. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, So he's placing himself into that care of another household. That's what's happening. 
You shall not make him serve you as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner, and he shall serve you till the year of Jubilee. There's a year of Jubilee every seven years where they say, now everybody, everybody gets their debt paid for, and everybody gets to go free. And in this context, biblically, here's what we see. The person who's in that house who had a hard time financially and had to now live with somebody else, if you want to think of that as a metaphor, they say, treat them with such a great dignity and care that when the year of Jubilee comes, they might actually want to stay working for you because you're that good of a master because your master has been that good to you. And then we have all these uses of laws. Now, Jay Sklar might be helpful to you. I don't know if you know Jay, but if you just Google Jay Sklar, he's a friend of mine. He's probably one of the top three scholars on Leviticus in the world. And uh, Jay has been a brilliant to kind of guide me through over the last years, uh, some thoughts in Leviticus. He makes his class at Covenant Seminary. Everybody has to keep uh, the Levitical laws for one week without breaking any American laws. Because, you know, some of that you can't kill a goat, obviously. And, and he said on day three or four, everybody has the same thing in the journal. They keep a journal for the week. He says day three or four, everybody says the same thing. I really, really miss bacon. Everybody says that. <laughs> well, what do these laws apply today? Now, this is just good biblical scholarship that you need to know and think about. There are three types of laws in the Bible. There's a moral law, there's a ceremonial law, and there's a civil law. So in the Old Testament, we see moral law. For example, the Ten Commandments. Now, those laws still apply to us today. See, Jesus said, if you remember, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And within Leviticus, there are some moral laws as well that teach us how to deal with each other with dignity. But the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are the ceremonies of the feasts and the festivals and all of those things. Those were fulfilled by the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So we can see and we can understand the ceremonial law, but we also see that Christ fulfills that ceremonial law and we don't have to keep, now as Christians, we don't have to keep the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And then there's a the civil law. Civil law are things in the Old Testament and things in Leviticus. For example, if you have a flat roof and you have a fence around, put a fence around it, because in the antiquity period, people would go up to the roofs and they would drink wine, and you don't want somebody to fall off your roof after they imbibe a little too much, so put a fence around That's a civil law. Uh, we have civil laws today. For example, when there's a Christmas party at my house, my front steps get icy often. And so I'll stay out there and I'll help people get up and down because A, I'm concerned about people and B, I don't want to get sued, right? I, I want to keep the principle of the civil law. So the principle of the civil law is really love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That takes care of everything. So the moral law we keep today, the ceremonial law, the civil law, have been uh, mitigated by Christ. Now let me just say this and then we'll move on uh, very quickly to the next one. You've got to decide, if you're, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, this would be the point that you want to really pay attention. We have to live underneath the lower laws, 
All of us have to live within the laws of America, the laws of the state of South Carolina. We live in the lower laws. But what really guides you is what's the upper law. What's the higher law above the lower law? And that all of us have. But we often don't think about it. For the Christian, we have a higher law that is God's law, which sometimes would make us civilly disobedient to the lower law, but that's another issue. But we have a higher law that we follow. So, for example, we have laws against defamation. That's a lower law. Uh, you can get charged for saying things about people with slander and defamation. But we as Christians have a higher law than that. Ephesians 4, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. See, that's a higher law that guides us, even though we have a lower law. And if you're not a believer, I want you to think, what's your higher law? What is guiding you? What is actually directing your life? And I would say God's law is kinder than the kindest of men. We need it. Number two, here's a second main point. We need laws that reflect love. Number two, we need ritual. If you just look back with me uh, in the first couple chapters, you'll see all of these offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offerings. These are all times that you would bring sacrifices to God, and there are times that you might do it for peace. There's times you might do it for thanksgiving. And what God's trying to communicate in those first six chapters is this. It's okay to come to me when you don't have a problem. <laughs> it's okay to come to me when you don't just need something from me. Come to me when uh, you just want to be thankful. Come to me when uh, you need sin or guilt removed. Sure, but come to, me for come to me for all of these other reasons besides just when you're in trouble. And then if you look at chapter 23 on, if you want to turn there, there's all these feasts, the Passover feast, the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Trumpets, all of these beautiful feasts. And what this does is it creates, both of these create ritual and it creates rhythm. Now we have feasts and festivals just like they do, and you know this. You have Thanksgiving. And the whole culture kind of understands what Thanksgiving is about. We're to be thankful. And you go right from that to Christmas. And then you go right from that into the Easter season. And scattered around all of that are birthdays and anniversaries and your favorite ice cream place that you always go to when you're on vacation. You've got that one place. You always go to the same house at the beach, and you always go to this one ice cream place. You go back to that one restaurant, and you have a meal because that's the first date you went on. We have rituals. All the time we have them. So these rituals and these rhythms are intended, as God says, to make us remind ourselves of who he is and what he's been doing in our lives. And the ritual of the Day Atonement happens once a year, and it's this beautiful ritual that pulls us back in. The other thing that happens in this text, because these rituals, all of these rituals, these I'm going to talk to you all for a little bit. All of these rituals and all of these feasts and all of these laws are meant to remind us. So when we get to the tabernacle, which is just a temporary temple, that's intended to remind us of Eden, that we have a better home. You enter the tabernacle from the east. You entered Eden from the east. 
Uh, there's gold in the tabernacle. There's gold in Eden. There's two angels guarding the way of Eden. There's two angels watching over the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. You have a priest there. Interestingly, in Genesis 3 and in Leviticus chapter 16, it says God walked among them in the garden and God walks among them in the tabernacle. Those Hebrew syntaxes are not used anywhere else. It's a nod back to think about this place as a place of Eden, the place where you feel at home. So let me just say this and then we'll be done. We have rituals and the rituals are met to remind us of who God is. A, fr a professor of mine sent me this prayer from a lady. It's just a beautiful prayer. I, I might get teared up reading it. I hope not. But it was a, uh, a friend of his who had dementia, and he asked her to write a prayer. And she wrote a prayer for him, and this is what it said. God, I forget who I am sometimes. And God, I forget who you are sometimes. But I still remember that we're friends. The ritual and the rhythm of life is intended to remind us that we're actually friends with God. That we're actually priests in his kingdom. And, and so the question I have for you is this. What are the rhythms of your life, if we want to be practical, that are pulling you back into relationship with God. Certainly, it's Sunday morning worship. I mean, every seven days, we come in here, and it's a rhythm, and it's a ritual of life that reminds us. And look, I, I have to be honest at this point. I'm a pastor. There's many days I wake up on a Sunday morning and think, I don't want to go. It's just my job. I don't have a choice, so I'm going. Well, I don't feel close to the Lord. I feel like a fraud. I don't know if I can do this another Sunday. And I come in here, and I look around, and I see some of you, and I know what's going on in many of your lives, and I see you, you're worshiping. And I think if they're there, then I can be there too. Friends who are going through horrible situations in life, who are singing and praising God, it's that ritual and that rhythm that brings us back in. The communion table is a means of grace. It's a ritual and it's a rhythm that brings us back in. I want you to think about your life. What are your rituals and what are your rhythms drawing you to? Are they drawing you away from Christ or are they drawing you towards a deeper relationship with God? Because maybe you need to rethink the rhythm of your week. Just the rhythm of a Sunday or maybe taking one day a month for a day of prayer, or, or taking one uh, week away and just reading and praying and studying, or going to serve somebody. Maybe we need to develop other rituals in our families' lives, in our personal lives, that remind us that we're friends with God. And we need atonement. So that's number three of the four. Uh, and then we come to this text. I'm not gonna preach uh, verse by verse through this text, just gonna highlight a couple of things. In this text, we see uh, what I call the drama of the gospel played out. Here's this priest. Once a year, Aaron gets to go into the Holy of Holies, and he takes this blood, and he sprinkles it on this mercy seat. If you, if you look at the book of Leviticus, there's just blood everywhere. It's like a horror movie. 
and he sprinkles this blood, but there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So he takes this, goes into this holy of holies, into the mercy seat, makes atonement for all of the people's sins. And then he takes a scapegoat, literally, lays his hands on it, sends it off into the wilderness. Well, we see Christ actually in both of these pictures. Christ is our ultimate atonement. He pays for all of our sins. He covers everything. And here's why that's important. We all need atonement. And we all seek atonement in different ways. Uh, For example, some of us try to play our way out of our sin. And here's what I mean by that. If you're a college basketball player and you... um, you gave up a bunch of steals that game. The only thing you have to do to get back in everybody's good graces is make the three-point shot to win at the end of the game, and everybody forgets it, right? You've atoned for all of your sins. You've atoned for all of the steals. A lot of time in life, we just try to play our way out of it. We try for one Hail Mary. We've been a horrible husband for 20 years. Then we buy our wife a new car hoping just to play our way out of it. That that will atone for everything you've done wrong. Number two is sometimes we try to talk our way out of our problems. And we think, "If if I get to those pearly gates, if I get to heaven and I can tell God these things, then surely he's gonna let me in. I can just talk my way out of this situation. But you can't talk your way out of it. You actually need a mediator. Imagine you're in a foreign country. Imagine you're in China or North Korea and you see a lady who's getting mugged and uh, this guy has a gun and he's mugging her and you go up and you stop it and you wrestle the gun from the guy and you wrestle her purse that he has. You wrestle that from her, from him and you have both now the gun and her purse and then that guy runs off and the police come. You can't talk your way out of that. You don't need a translator. You need a mediator. You need the lady to say, no, 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 he's not the problem. And when Christ has atoned for our sins, God the Father says, all of these sins have been laid on Christ. I don't have to come down on you. And you can't buy your way out of it either. That's what we try to do. We try to atone for things by buying our way out of it. There's somebody who said, I can't remember if you owe the bank 200000 then uh, you have a problem. If you default on that loan, if you owe the bank $200 million and you default on that loan, then you and the bank both have a problem. Well, you and God both have a problem, and here's the problem. He actually loves you, but your sin gets in the way. So he has to find a way to solve that. And he does by pouring all of that on Christ. But a lot of us are just trying to buy our way out with moral um, obedience instead of enjoying the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And then lastly, here's a scapegoat. We also see this uh, all the way through the New Testament where Jesus goes out into the wilderness to do battle with evil in Luke chapter four. He goes out for those 40 days. And when he comes, John the Baptist in John 1:29 says this. Remember what he says? Behold the lamb of God 
who will carry away, who will take away the sins of the world, that he will take your sins away as far as the east is from the west. And you saw what that means? That means that finally, friends, in this life you can rest. You can have joy. Neil already mentioned it. But the character on the Day of Atonement who doesn't rest is the priest. He's busy doing work. This is what he had to do during the Day of Atonement. Five garment changes, three washings. It already sounds like a wedding to me. Fifteen sacrificial offerings, three incense offerings, three confessions, ten hand washings, 43 sprinklings of the blood, four audible prayers. But he did all of that so that the people could rest. Now here's uh, the point on the atonement and then one final point and we're finished here. I wonder if you could finally and fully rest in the gospel. Like really rest in it. That Jesus really has paid for all of your sins and set you free. And, And you don't have to pay it back. Matter of fact, you can't. And you can't play your way out of your sin, and you can't talk your way out of your sin. But you can rest in the real reality that God really has forgiven you, and then you can spend your lifetime enjoying that and getting to know him. Because the fourth point is this, we need holiness. All throughout this text, it it talks about being set apart. And more than probably anything else in the world right now, Christians need to focus on holiness. You know what this world needs? This world desperately needs holy people. And if you disagree with that, just look at Twitter for 30 minutes. I'm so depressed this week watching friends of mine, PCA pastors, go at each other on Twitter and thinking, what is happening here? What we need is holiness. And holiness is not moroseness. Holiness is, it's hope wrapped in joyful obedience through faith. Holiness is contentment. Holiness is peace. Holiness is happiness. It's not dour morality. It's this vibrant life where you're spending your life being set apart in the sight of God and living for his pleasure and not your own. And you spend all of your life doing that, growing closer and closer to him, enjoying the adventure, trying to see how holy you can get because that's a representation of our God who is holy. That's why it says in Leviticus 11, be holy as I am holy. It's what the world needs. It's what your heart needs because it's what's gonna give you the most amount of contentment and joy and peace. All of your despair, all of your anguish, all of your depression stems from a lack of holiness. Well, how does that happen? I will close with this. There's three categories of um, basically people in Leviticus. told some of you this before, but there's a category of holiness, and then there's a category, is that on the screen? Yes, it is. And then there's a category of cleanliness, and then there's a category of uncleanliness. So that's the structure for Leviticus and all the ritual laws. Here's what happens. In Leviticus, that middle category is meant to keep the unclean from the holy, right? So if something holy touches something unclean, the holy thing becomes unclean. 
If something clean touches something unclean, the clean thing becomes unclean. Then you have to go through the rituals to become clean, and then the clean thing has to go through the rituals to become holy. So it works down, right? That's the way it works in those three categories. And the clean category is there because the holy thing is never supposed to touch the unclean thing. That's called an abomination before the Lord. So the leper, the blind person, the person with these deformities, all of these things, they're unclean. That doesn't mean they're sinful. They're just unclean. They have to get back to being clean. And the clean thing then has to get to being holy. That's how the whole thing works. Until Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, the Holy One, he jumps right over the middle category and touches the unclean. And now for the first time ever, the Holy One doesn't become unclean. The unclean becomes holy. He reverses the whole system. And so he touches the leper, And the leper says, are you willing to make me clean? And Jesus says, I am willing. I am. And he touches the leper. That would have been so scandalous. And he says, go and show the priest that you're clean now because of me. Go take it to the the guy at the top who's still working under that system that's about morality and winning that game. No, I'll touch you. And he allows the the woman who's bleeding in Mark chapter 5, reach through the crowd and touches robe. He says, where the power's gone out from me, where are you? She finally shows herself and he says, daughter, go in faith. You're healed from all of your diseases. And he finds the man in John 9 who's been born born blind. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, what game are y'all playing? Neither one of those. This has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, and he healed him. And so as uh, Spurgeon said, holiness is not the way to Christ, but Christ is the way to holiness. It's not like you work your way to Christ. We enjoy the presence of Christ in our lives now, and we live holy lives so that we might have the most amount of joy. And we allow Jesus to touch us and heal us, and we show him the dirty parts of us and the parts of us that we don't want anybody else to see, the unclean parts of us, because he's literally the only one who can make us holy. And what a a joy it is that we have a God who sees all of our nastiness and all of our sin and still loves us and cares for us because we spent our lives since the garden trying to hide it. So we need these rituals and rhythms. We need atonement. We need holiness, and we need laws that reflect love. Uh, Go back and read Leviticus with those things in mind, and then this afternoon, find a way to enjoy this great Savior of ours who makes the unclean things holy. Father, we pray now uh, that we would, one day we're going to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb, as it says in uh, Revelation 5 and 21 and 22. And uh, we long for that day.